2: Hello and welcome to a new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. Regular listeners will be expecting to hear Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and Theo Lenaduzzi, who usually present it, but they are both on holiday, so have unwisely left their podcast in our hands. I'm Lucy Dallas, the arts editor of the TLS and I'm joined by Toby Lishtig, the fiction and other things editor. Um, I'm sorry about that description, Toby, I wasn't completely sure what I should say. What I actually do, <laughs> uh, that's fine. <laughs> so many things, so many wonderful things. Toby, can I ask you, are you cross at not being on holiday or gleeful at the prospect of having the podcast to ourselves?
3: I think gleeful at the opportunity to launch this this coup on the podcast, a, a semi, semi-popular semi coup, I don't know, a, a terribly unpopular we'll find coup, out, only Time will tell.
2: <laughs> and maybe later we'll be playing some of our improvised jazz odyssey, which we've uh, been working on this afternoon. Um, If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type POD1 in the offer code section and then you can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the podcast this week, we're going to celebrate the singular vision of Ian Nairn, an architectural missionary who wrote idiosyncratically about great cities, London and, in this case, Paris, and had some surprising conclusions. He called Notre Dame one of the most pessimistic buildings in the world. David Collard, a TLS critic and great admirer of NAN, will be enthusing with us. We're also going to talk about the birds and the bees. Don't worry, not that conversation, but one about how we think about animals, their rights, their cognition and how we treat them. With particular reference to a Cytocene memoir, Toby made me say this word, so yep. please don't blame me for that one.
3: That, that means parrot-related. I have a bit of an obsession with those kind of animal adjectives, for which many apologies everybody.
2: There we go. This is the the best Cytocene memoir you will hear about this week. It's reviewed in the TLS by our own Catherine Morris, the biography editor. And returning to France, Lisa Hilton will join us to discuss how, contrary to what you might have thought, the Marquis de Sade is in fact boring and unsexy.
3: But first this week, the architectural critic Ian Nairn is described by his admirers as Britain's greatest topographical author. But after a successful career writing newspaper columns and books and presenting TV series during the 1950s and 60s, he slipped into alcoholic obscurity. Nairn died young of cirrhosis of the liver, his books fell out of print, and he is little talked about today. Except there has been something of a Nairn revival in recent years. His tour of Britain's capital, an undisputed masterpiece, Nairn's London, was republished in 2014, and Nairn's Paris has just been reissued by Notting Hill Editions and is reviewed by Ian Brunskill in this week's TLS. Brunskill admires, among other things, Nairn's sheer enthusiasm for his subject. Nairn describes Paris, for example, as a collective masterpiece, perhaps the greatest in the world. Ian Brunskill isn't able to talk to us today, but we are more than fortunate to be joined in his stead by the TLS stalwart and Ian Nairn fancier, David Collard. Hello David. Uh, Hello Toby. Jonathan Meads once described Nairn as a cross between Anthony Burgess and Tony
4: Hancock. Is this a fair summation, do you think? Yes, I think it was said affectionately. I think one might throw in a bit of Eeyore and proofrock as well. Nairn was a glum enthusiast. He loved the gloomy sodality of pubs. He was a solitary, the best kind of flaneur, I suppose, if you're a reader. I don't imagine he was companionable in the flesh. But reading Nan's London, as I've been doing for 30-odd years, and rereading Nairn's Paris one engages with his voice and feels almost privileged to be taught by him how to look and how to feel about what we see. Nairn's Paris isn't quite as substantial as Nairn's London. I don't think he ever gets a purchase on Paris as he does the capital in which he lived, and that's because he's a double outsider in Paris. He's he's a foreigner and a non-resident. He's there for brief stretches of time when, I guess, he zooms around by public transport. Uh, seeing as much as you can, especially in the outer lying suburbs. Interestingly enough, you say he's neglected. I don't think so. I think you know his main books are back in print. He had been neglected, though. Uh, oh, was, really for, for several for decades. Yeah. Yes, I think so, and and uh, that, that that's a great shame. But uh, he certainly his influence is very visible. In I guess we have to call them the psychogeographers: uh, Jonathan Meads, Will Self, um, Ian Sinclair, Owen Hadley. I don't think Nairn himself would have recognised the term or even used it, although, uh, as Andrew Hussey points out in his very good introduction to uh, Nan's Paris, the term was coined by Guy Debord in the 1950s. Uh, as part of the Situationist movement. And as it happens, Nairn's Paris appeared a couple of months before the tumultuous events of May 1968. I don't suppose his book precipitated them.
3: (laughs) I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his aesthetics. He was described in in his obituary as an architectural and planning missionary. Um, What what was his mission
4: exactly? Well, yes, that, that stems from his spectacular debut, if you will, in a special edition of the Architectural Review called Outrage, in which he coined famously the term subtopia because, as he saw it in post-war Britain, the planners and architects, councils and other stakeholders were reducing the um, the countryside to a mess in which, if I remember rightly, the start of Carlisle looks like the end of Southampton. And the end the of South- Southampton and South- looks like the end of Carlisle. Yeah. I've read it so many times, I can't remember it properly, but he lambasted everything from signage to roundabouts to pylons to mysterious things in fields, which were just the result of shoddy half-baked thinking um, and this caught on with a non-specialist public who um, seemed to embrace the idea fully and that that established his reputation overnight and he became quite a significant writer and public figure after that.
3: But it wasn't just the old that he venerated was it? I mean he, he was perfectly prepared to embrace some aspects of
4: modernity and modern architecture. Oh definitely he, he was not a nostalgist at all and in Nens Paris he's he's constantly repeating this cry for destruction rather than gentrification. Um, what he hated was bad buildings bad architecture, and more what they did to communities, to the people who lived in them or mm. lived around them. He, he doesn't engage with people on, on a very human level in Nairn's Paris or Nairn's London. There are never any conversations.
2: He's just looking at the buildings and talking about the buildings. Yes, it's, it's yeah. a bit like
4: those early daguerreotypes where the slow exposure meant that the people didn't show up because they were moving too swiftly. Mm. But the buildings remain in sight. And, and Nairn does engage fully and wholly and emotionally with the built environment, um, but not at all with... People. On the telly programmes he did, he falls to pieces almost in front of real people, really? he, becomes, he becomes extremely nervous and almost shifty, alas, but in front of the camera he was, he was more or less natural. Are, are his
3: programmes available to see? Yes,
4: yeah, they're um, available, clips of them on YouTube, in, including, and any Nairn fan will tell you this is a must-see, a total meltdown at the Munich Beer Festival in which he loses his temper. in front of the camera, faced with the crass drunkenness and the abuse of of, of liquid he venerated. Um, uh, (laughs) He he venerated it it a bit too much, he? he loses it, I'm afraid, so it's uh, a rather sad and early end, um, and he pretty much drank himself to death Mm. over the last 15 years, and Nairn's Paris was his last gesture towards serious writing, I guess. There were to be other books, but they never materialised.
2: What um what I like about um, the way you talk about, it. I haven't read any, I must confess and, and and now I very much want to, but what I like about the the impression you give of him is that he's not he's not educating people, he's not talking down to them, he's not saying how it should be. He's not saying this is architecture, uh, you know, and um, this is not a good example of it. He's looking at what he finds interesting and he's pointing to it and saying, look, this is good. And if you find something bad in the sense that it's not livable in by humans or it's not designed for humans, but, you know, it, it, it's not a good place to live or work or whatever it is. But he doesn't care whether, like, he's, he's, it sounds as though he's just as happy to um, appreciate a well-built car park. Or, or, or you, uh, I think they said that you know, he liked, there's a good primary school and he goes, oh, you know, that's wonderful.
3: He, he describes his book on London, doesn't he, as simply my personal list of the best things in London, a record of what has moved me between Uxbridge and Dagenham. <laughs> mm,
2: and that's really nice. So not the sense of someone saying, look at this and admire it because of its classical proportions. No,
4: he virtually repeats himself in the introduction or preface to Nairns Paris, where he says, this is simply a record of what I enjoyed in Paris and the countryside around. Mm. What he enjoys, though, is kind of interesting. It's it's. It's not the, the the obvious places, the, the Eiffel Tower and the Sacré Coeur, although they get mention. It's the dingy northern suburbs, it's um, uh, airfields and electricity <laughs> generating stations and tatty. That sounds trail very stuff. That it's, sounds
3: very Ian Sinclair to me as well. So oh, I can, yeah. Yes, I the, suppose. The, so, the yeah. first yeah. Ian got there earlier,
4: I suppose. If I may, there's one absolutely representative paragraph in Nen's Paris, mm-hmm. which, if you haven't read um, Ian, I'll, I'll share with you. I, th- I so I chose it almost at random. It's for a, a church in the Marais called Saint-Nicolas-des-Champs. And this is the entire 100-word paragraph. And see how much he packs in and how far he gets. The outside rambles and bulges like a string bag overfilled at the supermarket. The inside has double aisles and chapels flowing around the whole building, either gently Gothic or classicized with a resounding fluted thump. In them there is room for anything a space and freedom rarely found in the biggest cathedrals. It feels as though behind the next pillar there could be a zinc bar counter, a tray full of lingerie, or a Muslim prayer niche. Alert, tolerant, as full of life as the ferocious timbre of its organ, a real church for Parisians inhabited by a million shrugs. (laughs) <laughs> I like those shrugs. Is, I, I love the shrugs. That's, that's, and, uh, that's it, wonderful. Uh, again, it's n- typically engaging with humanity in the abstract. Yes. A million shrugs. But, but,
2: but not actually one person.
4: But to get in a 100 words from a bulging supermarket bag. That <laughs> is lovely. Which fixes itself in... I've never been to the church. I don't especially want to go to the church because I well, think, I think that, that might be disappointing. Yeah, I
3: think you oughtn't to, you now. The
2: other thing I like is what he says about Notre Dame, which, of course, we, we are supposed to sort of admire. And he says... Um, what does he say? He says it's one of the most pessimistic buildings in the world. <laughs> and I love that because there is some sort of. It's new a bit not- gloomy, uh, isn't it? You just it? sort of think, oh, <laughs> yes. oh, gosh, you know, like you're being kind of ground under. <laughs>
4: he, he does later on, however, allow that N- Notre Dame Cathedral can be fitted diagonally between the struts of the Eiffel Tower or the legs, or whatever they're called. That was one Something thing to do with it, before. certainly.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, David, by, by happy coincidence, you've also reviewed a novel uh, in this week's paper. It's called In the Absence of Harold Absalom by Simon Akoti, which uh, is a kind of anti thriller as you describe it as a how-done-it, um, and say so that it's a seriously funny novel of great range and depth. Um, but even more serendipitously for today's purposes, there's a kind of Akoti... Nairn connection um, in the form of a Rootmaster bus and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about Akoti's novel
4: Yes it is a a, a very serendipitous connection. The cover of Nairn's London the original 1966 masterpiece uh, shows a Rootmaster bus, one of London's iconic double-deckers registration CUV217C and Ian N, the author, is leaning out looking very pleased with himself staring straight at the camera it's a wonderful piece of, of mid-century penguin design. And uh, Simon O'Coty's first novel, Whatever Happened to Harold Absalom, could be seen as a tribute to that. It's a full-on uh, front of a rootmaster double decker bus, possibly the same one which still exists and which, and this is the odd connection, um, I bumped into Simon for the first time at a, a, a bus rally um, in Finsbury Park to mark the 50th anniversary of London's Routemaster Bus. Uh-huh. Um, I was dragged along by my stepson, Frank, um, who is interested in buses. Mm-hmm. All right, And Simon was selling copies of his first novel to no doubt bemused bus fans, because it is <laughs> something of a, an avant-garde masterpiece. It's an extraordinarily funny and original stretch of writing. It's set entirely, his first novel, on a Routemaster Bus. As a detective, Marguerite, navigates from the front seat at the top to the top of the staircase via the conductor that's about all that happens and this
3: is the follow-up isn't and it? and the
4: follow-up which i've reviewed in the tls but no i should add that um, we fell into conversation about i hadn't to have a copy of nairns london with me because i never leave home without it and <laughs> fell into conversation and and both agreed how happy it was that the two books resembled each other it turned out that simon akoti is a devoted nanian as am i and so i read his novel with great interest and surprise and Envy, I think, because it is a, amongst other things, it's a brilliant, sustained homage to Beckett and the Beckett of Watt and the trilogy mm-hmm. in all of its repetitions and permutations and, and, and remorseless pedantry. And, and not going anywhere. And not going anywhere, a bit like a rootmaster. In the second book, which I review in the current TLS, it's a sequel of sorts in which the original Harold Absalom is still missing as is Marguerite, the detective who was investigating his disappearance in the first volume, who is now being pursued by a, a nameless investigator, who spends the entire book basically fumbling for a key in one pocket and mounting the steps outside a townhouse, and it's marvellous. It's The and there is very important. It's, and uh, and, and this it's is marvellous. Marvelous. It's, it's yep. tantalisingly odd, wholly original, beautifully written, but um, an interesting take on what I believe is, is a big number with neuropsychologists these days which is the binding problem, how do we make sense of the world that we live in given mm-hmm. all the sense data that comes into our brains from, from our eyes how do we separate that into meaning and I think his book is about that partly, the mind in, in Cody's books is constantly racing processing information, looking at alternatives, caveats. What if this, then that? What if that, then this? And the body is lugged behind, (laughs) managing a couple of steps in the course of the entire novel or a couple of heartbeats or or, um, a couple of gestures. Um, And if you like that sort of thing, it's the sort of thing you'll love. I I really enjoyed both of his novels, and I hope there'll be a third, possibly a fourth.
3: Mm. Wonderful. I think two two great recommendations there for, for those who aren't already in the know.
2: Yep, yep, yep. Get on a bus and read both of those books. So we've also been talking about animals quite a lot in the TLS recently. Tim D gives us some theories about birdsong this week. Last week we discussed man's relationship with the horse through the ages and how that closeness has been broken by the advent of industrialisation, possibly much to the horse's relief. We also had a piece on how the French Revolution helped animal rights, as man's primacy in the world was completely reconsidered before being swiftly re-established by Napoleon. And Ian Ground did a piece for us on what he called Species Solipsism, in which he said, What we seem unable to do is to give weight to both the reality and the diversity of minds other than our own. Catherine Morris of this parish has joined us in the studio to talk about Brian Brett's memoir of a life spent with birds, and with one parrot in particular. Catherine, is this a good summing up of the position taken by Brian Brett?
5: Yes, I think it's a very good summing up. Brett talks about what he calls the gap conceit, and he's referring to our tendency to view ourselves as special and separate from the rest of the animal kingdom. That comes in part from Christian ideas about creation, but it's also convenient for us to look at ourselves that way. It feeds our vanity, and it makes exploiting animals easier. Mm. Uh, One important quotation in the book comes from Charles Darwin. I'll read it out if that's all right. Mm. He writes, it is a significant fact that the more the habits of any particular animal are studied by a naturalist, the more he attributes to reason and the less to unlearned instinct. And Brett also makes the point that we assess animals according to our own values rather than theirs. And in fact, there's a good example of this that is mentioned by both Ground and Brett. And that's the story of a horse called Clever Hands, who seemed to be able to solve math problems. Mm-hmm, yeah. He would tap out the answers with his hoof. This was in Germany in the early 20th century. And it was discovered that he was arriving at the right answer by reading the reactions of those around him. A lot of people lost interest at that point and thought, oh, well, he's not clever after all.
2: Because he can't do maths. He's exactly. not a horse doing maths.
5: Exactly, but yeah. failing to consider how extraordinary it was that a horse was so sensitive to the, the behaviour of another species.
2: That he was able to read them and sort of see what was the time to stop Yes, tapping his hoof. That's how he was doing it. Exactly. Which is amazingly sensitive, in fact, yeah, and much more sensitive than many humans we might know nobody in particular. (laughs) But he has these ideas about animals, and that ties in with his ideas about the other, doesn't he, and how Mm. other people have thought about the other, and and why in particular he, Brian Brett, came to be thinking about this sort of thing.
5: Yes. um, Brian Brett was born in 1950 with a condition called Kalman syndrome. It's a genetic hormonal condition. It meant that he appeared androgynous and had various... Uncomfortable symptoms, sore bones, unstable moods. And the condition had only recently been discovered. So he was a sort of medical curiosity. He was also an outcast at school, and he says that he became a target for bullies and rapists. Mm. And at one point, he himself became a sort of bully. He was quite volatile this was when he was being given testosterone, um, excessive testosterone.
2: For his condition. Yes. Yeah.
5: But he soon checked himself and became very interested in empathy and in how we treat the other. Uh, another strand in this is the fact that he has always been hypersensitive to atmosphere and other people's emotions and mood. He thinks, in fact, this may be part of his condition mm. and it enables empathy.
3: You link this um, idea of otherness, or othering, I think he calls it, to, to morality itself. and there's, there's a great quote from Schopenhauer, which I think Brett himself quotes, saying, universal compassion is the only guarantee of morality, which I think seems to be a, a lovely way of putting it.
5: Yes, he does make the point that othering, treating another group as alien, it's a, it's a complex issue. It's present throughout the animal kingdom. But we, we are able to examine it and look at its negative consequences, and the state of our environment is oh, so one you mean, example. you mean we
2: see the environment as the other? Yes. So as soon as the thing becomes the other, whether mm. it's another species or, an, or the environment or even another set of people, mm. you don't have to care about them quite so much because exactly. they're not one of you. Yes. And you he, can treat them differently. He
5: in fact, quotes um, from a line in the film Withnail and I. Oh. The actors are presented with a live rooster by a local, a local farmer and one of them says, let's kill it before we make friends. Oh, yeah. So it's sort of self-serving not to look at look at other animals from their point of view. Or, of course, we can't do that. But to study it carefully so that we can begin to understand how they might view mm. the world.
3: And this seems to be particularly important in the in the age of the Anthropocene, which you know we are now firmly in. It seems more vital than ever to to come to an understanding of this sort of thing.
5: Exactly. He seems to have some sympathy for those who think the way he puts it. He says that there might be an event in the next. 50 years. So he's worried not, that... Not, not a good event. Not, not a good, not good event. Not like a party <laughs> or...
3: A
4: happening. No, yes.
5: a bad event. He does think that we're, we're good at dodging the dooms we create. I think that's the way he puts it. Um, but he certainly thinks we're in a very serious position. Mm. So is
3: it an optimistic book then, in that sense, or, or is it are we just left with the, the doom of the event to look forward oh, to? He's,
5: he said it's inspired by hope. He has, yes, relentless hope. But he thinks that making ourselves look at the animal kingdom in a different way will help us to stave off something terrible.
2: We have to mention, I think, the real hero of the book. It sounds as though Brian Brett is the hero, but actually the real hero of the book, as you tell it, is an African grey parrot called Tuco.
5: Yes. Well, Brett was always very interested in birds. As a child, he had a canary and he looked at baby barn owls in the nest and that sort of thing and about, at the age of about 35 he decided that he'd like to buy a parrot and he scanned newspaper adverts and that sort of thing um, and eventually he was introduced to a five year old African grey named Circles and the bird's owner had to give him up because she had a new partner and Circles had taken violently against him right. and Brett describes their first meeting he writes that he marched up my arm to my shoulder and cocked his eye at me as if he were reading my mind and he goes on to say that circles was way too sucky a name (laughs) (laughs) which is a fair point this is after he's (laughs) dive-bombed his cats and things like that and and done things like knock things off a surface in order to hit the dog and and things like that (laughs) Um, excellent and in the course of the book brett describes in some detail what it's like to live with an african gray parrot I could read a bit from the review. Do, if that do helps. tell
2: us some of what he says because it's so it's so lovely. Have, have, have
3: either of you ever lived with an African grey
2: parrot, by the way?
3: I have not lived with an think? African
5: grey parrot. I haven't, but my dad had one before my time and has talked about it a bit.
2: Have you, yeah.
3: Toby? No, no, I've no, not, not yet. I thought you were about to tell no, us a no, wonderful no, no, anecdote. No, 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 that's I was just curious. <laughs> Sorry, do you go on.
5: Uh, so I'll just read a little bit from the review um, to give you a sense. Tuco sometimes invents fake opponents, suddenly flying into wing flapping attacks at the unseeable, or whipping round when he thinks a foe is sneaking up on him. Louis Armstrong's rendition of Mac the Knife sends him into paroxysms of scat singing, with the addition of whistling and whooping and dancing and bell ringing. Tuco shouts, Brian, get in here! to get Brett's attention, copies his phone calls, mm hmm, yeah, no, that's right, okay, and mimics hammer, saw, and drill. When he's ready to sleep, he yells, Time for bed! And if that announcement is ignored, he tries the kitschy variations or calls out with loving, mournful versions, then he turns forceful. So that just gives you a sense of his, his personality and his manipulative techniques.
3: Range of emotion. <laughs> yeah, and
2: I love him going, Brian, get in here. There's another bit when, or something but that he can sort of tell if, if, if Brian and his wife are brewing an argument. Mm,
5: he seems to be able to read body language extremely well.
2: Yeah, so he sort of starts intervening early on and joining yes. in with the argument.
5: Yes, joining in a bit, shouting a few insults.
2: That and then, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so then after a bit, they can't, they can't really argue because <laughs> they're laughing at him too much. Yeah. Um, and it sounds... They're lovely stories, and they're all... I mean, this is all true. Um, and it t- t- sounds as though this kind of might risk seeming kind of cute and, you know, isn't it funny what parrots say? Um, and Brett calls the memoir dangerously egocentric, but you, you didn't find it dangerously egocentric. Is that right?
5: Um, well, Brett wanted to write about Tuco in there. 25 years together, that's what he started with and he says that he writes in order to find out what he thinks and it is quite a meandering book, it's inspired by the wanderings of his own mind so it's self-centered in that way also it doesn't have the rigor of a a scientific book, it doesn't have footnotes for example Mm. but it draws on both personal experience with animals and quite a wide range of secondary sources and in spirit it's very generous um, and it's noticeable that in, in those parts where Brett is writing about himself, he's very open about things from his past that he's ashamed of, for example. Mm. Um, he mentions torturing frogs as a child and mm. killing a robin with a bow and arrow. And he writes at one point, I've got it here, um, over the years, a few doors kicked in and chair-throwing rages have made me m- notorious in the literary scene, Though I've re- though they've retreated into the past. I haven't wrecked a room in decades." So <laughs> the book, isn't, it's not an ego trip. He's got perspective and really his message is, get over yourself. Humans are extremely interesting, but so is the rest of the animal kingdom.
2: Brilliant. I can't think of a better message. Get, get a, over yourself. Get over With yourself. That. Get a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much,
5: Catherine. Thank you. I,
3: I love the sound of that memoir. It sounds, it sounds wonderful. I also came across a great story uh, a couple of weeks ago about an African grey parrot. Um, they sound like the best sort of parrot. Um, This parrot provided key evidence at a trial in Sand Lake, Michigan. Uh, Glenna Durham was convicted of murder having shot her husband Martin five times in front of their pet parrot, Bud. This is according to a report in The Independent and various other newspapers, so I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, And according to this report, the parrot was able to mimic the couple's preceding argument in both the voices of the husband and the wife.
2: So it was like having a sort of a recorder, like exactly. a tape recorder there. and
3: And each time it re- re- recounted this anecdote, it ended with the words, in the voice of the deceased, don't shoot. <gasps> no! This was used in evidence and it helped convict the wife of first-degree murder. But
2: how do they know the parrot wasn't in cahoots with the husband? No, the husband was dead. The husband was dead, <laughs> so there so you go. So it didn't avail him at all. Not really. But maybe she didn't really shoot him, but the parrot had always hated the wife and thought, I'm going I'm um, to send her down gonna, for first-degree murder. In which
3: case, well done, the parrot. But uh, there you go.
2: <laughs> Be
1: careful. Be careful. Be careful exa- what you do in front of your exactly. parrot. Exactly. Be
3: nice to your parrots. That's the uh, That's the moral of that story. <laughs> Very
1: good. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Now returning to France, but going back in time some 350 years... Lisa Hilton reviews this week a new translation of The 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, written in prison. De Sade is known primarily now for inspiring the term sadist and generally advocating libertinage, but you argue, Lisa, that he is really a satirist and that this is how he should be read.
6: Hello, it's nice to be here. Yes, I think that's true. I think anyone dipping into The 120 Days of Sodom in in search of a cheap thrill is going to be severely disappointed. Um, I think one one has has more of a risk of being bored to death than anything else. Um, Desaad saw himself very much as as a moral philosopher and a satirist, uh, rather than a writer of erotica or pornography. And his real concern, particularly in Sodom, is the relationship between institutional and individual violence.
2: So it's, I mean, you say at the end that he's a satirist more, perhaps more in the vein of Swift.
6: Uh, in the sense that he he was he, he despised Rousseau. Um, I, I think of of, of Rousseau and Descartes as, as being as being two sides of of Enlightenment thought, and you can kind of envisage. Desaad as, as Rousseau's dark twin, um, he frequently referred to Rousseau's glorification of man's state of nature as moronic. Mm. Um, and what he seeks to do, I think, consistently through through all his, his novelistic writings, is to push Rousseau's thought to a kind of reductio ad absurdum, ad absurdum in order to, to send it up, to satirize it, to show how absurd it is. And at the same time, to test and to question the premises of enlightenment rationality. So, if if
2: Rousseau is advocating, um, you know, that that we should all be natural and that man's and what, natural and what state says is, is yeah. that actually
6: nature is appalling, nature yes. is vicious, nature look, is, this is nature is, is ruthlessly cruel, and yeah. that civilization is the only thing that can protect us from nature. And the idea that we should obey our whims because they are dictated to us by nature is is to him appalling. And this is what he sets out to do. In, uh, in Sodom, where he has the, the four friends or, or conspirators um, attempt to indulge their, their every natural desire.
2: Yes, um, and you make a point of saying how boring and unpleasant it is to read. I've only read a little bit, but I did also find it very boring and very unpleasant.
6: I think it's, I think it's a very alarming book uh, to, to 21st centuries, not least because there is so much child abuse involved, which makes for pretty harrowing reading. Mm. Um, I think also something which which is quite alienating in its effect uh, is the fact that the way that the the class system describes, as I I describes operates, effectively sees people who who are not noble, not aristocratic, as, as pretty much as objects. Um, But it's incredibly dull. I mean, um, Desaad, when he was, I mean, he spent much of his life in in prison and he became obsessed with ritual, with numerology, with a kind of obsessive-compulsive counting and numbering. Um, and one sees the, the, the kind of madness of, of the prison w- within the writings. I mean, Sodom is, is, is really about people going crazy in prison as much as anything else. And no, it, it's, it's not an entertaining read. No,
2: no, certainly not. I, I suppose my
3: question is, what, why translate it now? Why bother with a new translation? Who's, who's the readership?
6: The translators have, have done a magnificent job, and, and one thing that I, I didn't quite have the space to, to mention in the review was, was quite how superlative their translation is. It manages to be very funny, very a- accurate, and it captures... They, they've chosen not to, um, to sort of complete or edit a lot of the unfinished sentences, and so one has a, an absolute direct sense of, of how de was writing. Of course, the, the, the book was written on scrolls of paper which were carefully smuggled out of, of the Bastille, um, but I, I think Desaad is, is still a very important thinker. I mean, I, I'm not alone in this opinion. Some fairly serious people, um, everyone from Simone de Beauvoir to Theodore Adorno, have given their attention to Um And I think as a philosopher, as a subverter of Enlightenment thought, as a counterpoint to our perception of the rationale of the terror, for example, Desaad still has a place.
2: Um, and you, you say in your piece that he's not you thought of him as just a kind of Ancien Régime misogynist and you say, well, he's more no, than that. No, I,
6: I, I think readers of, of Dessard will be, will be quite surprised by the apparent modernity and liberalism of, of some of his views. Um, he believed in equality for women, he believed um, that women should be sexually free, he despised the system of Marriage and the obsession with virginity that pertained in the French Ancien Régime. Um, he was also very open and, and straightforward about homosexuality. Um, the idea that, that um, one's sexual preferences should, should be in any way determinative of one's moral preferences seemed abhorrent to him. So in, he's, he's quite a surprising thinker in many ways.
2: Sure, I can see that the, uh, the liberal attitude towards homosexuality was extremely. Unusual. Well, and and
6: indeed the liberal attitude towards female sexual pleasure. But the liberal attitude
2: towards women, what happens in the book is that for, as you say, a nobleman, a judge, a bishop and a financier go on a kind of sexual rampage using lower class women and children and most of them end up dead.
6: Most of them, although crucially not all. And in fact, the only women who, who do manage to make it out of the chateau alive are the lower class procuresses. Um, and this is this is where we, we have this kind of rather disturbing meditation on the nature of power. Actually, interestingly, I was thinking of it in relation to uh, Naomi Alderman's book, uh, mm. The Power, the one that won the Baileys Prize recently, where she discusses what would happen if women had a power that made them physically uh, capable of overpowering men um, and the potential for corruption that, that could ensue for corruption, for depravity, and also for oppression. Um, and reconsidering uh, Sodom today, I was thinking of, of de procuresses and the way in which he discusses the idea that any individual who's given absolute power may well be intensely corrupted by it. So uh, I think it's what one expects de to pre- proceed in a particular way, and he always surprises one. He He always, he always kind of disrupts. The, the predictable path that we expect him to take.
3: Is, is there still not a lot of men dominating women to a, a horrific extent in this book or is that partly where the satire is? Well there's,
6: al- there's also quite a lot of women do- dominating men um, I mean without wishing to go too much into the extremely unpleasant details of mm-hmm. it, um, it's certainly not anything that one w- one would read for erotic purposes I think unless one's tastes were very extreme. Um, there, there is quite a degree of, of um, women dominating men but of course Desard saw women as being the victims of a patriarchal system, and as as we discussed earlier, he wanted to push Rousseau's ideas to their logical extreme. And so, in Decad, what we we see, yes, we see, we see men dominating women, which to Decad is is the natural conclusion of the violently patriarchal system under which women are so dreadfully oppressed.
2: And you say also that he didn't necessarily practice what
6: he preached. No, uh, no. I mean, he, he remarked in in a letter to his wife that he'd written in the Bastille that. Although he he described many crimes, he'd actually committed none. His his crimes were were thought crimes. They were things he'd imagined rather than things he'd done.
2: Sure, but I, I well, perhaps I was what I was reading was inaccurate. But I was reading that he was first imprisoned be- precisely because uh, he, kind of sexual violence and kind of assault against a uh, well, Chamberlain. which the, the sounds tart, pretty the, much the, like the, what the he was talking about. The the
6: Spanish fly. What he did was certainly unpleasant, but it wasn't legal. Um, The only thing that he did that was actually illegal, supposedly, although there is no evidence particularly either way, was enjoy a homosexual relationship with his valet, a crime for which both men were condemned to death in absentia and burned in effigy. Mm. Um, But the idea that that, that Desaad was was, um, a murderer, a sadist, someone who... Inflicted brutal pain on unwilling victims is is simply historically not worn out.
2: Mm. And in fact, he was imprisoned, as you say, he was imprisoned for so long because that was the lettre de cachet, wasn't it? That was he his was, family was saying, "Let's by, by get rid of him." the
6: kind of of. Um tyranny that he sought to expose in his books by um the, the power of, of, of the king to lock up anyone at any time indefinitely and without trial mm. um and his 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 own view but was very much that his crimes had been committed in his imagination and nowhere else
2: lovely so um well i said lovely it's not lovely at all <laughs> quite the opposite <laughs> so unpleasantly <laughs> yes. so um, unpleasantly <laughs> but he's um but it's certainly it's certainly an um a very different way of looking at him than the the kind of usual picture that we're well, given
6: I, I think that the picture we have of, of decided is, is, is really an inherited stereotype both of, of the ancien regime and of of the man himself i mean he's not a pornographer he's not a sadist and in fact um, given the opportunity um, as i point out in the review to practice what he supposedly preached during the terror um he, he refrained from it moreover he was elected to the National Convention um, as Citizen Saad and was one of the very few suicidally brave people to openly criticize Robespierre mm. um, for the tyranny into which the French Revolution had descended. So if one can say nothing else about de one, one can't say that you know he was either a coward or someone who, who was fearful of defending liberty.
2: Lisa Hilton, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to be with you again. Thank, thank, thank you. you very much
3: interesting stuff so have you read any disabled, Lisa? I
2: think, I think I've read a little bit a long time ago and it was very much as Lisa said horrible mm. and, and boringly horrible I mean the way she talks about it makes him a much, much more interesting character.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think he's one of those authors that I am very, very happy to read about in the TLS, and <laughs> so slightly never... less happy about to read in the original. Which is, yeah, you know, which quite. is fine. It's one yeah. of the one of the many joys and purposes of the paper for which we work. <laughs> yes. See the plug.
2: I believe it's the Times Literary Supplement, available on subscription. Well, that's all the animals, cities, sex, and violence we've got time for this week. I think. Um, so many thanks to Catherine Morris and David Collard and Lisa Hilton. Stig and Thea will be back in charge next week refreshed and revitalised so you can look forward to that do go to our website the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS which also has a wonderful exchange of views or what I'm calling it a philosophy death match. though I'm not supposed to um, between Daniel Dennett and David Papineau about the mind two, uh, two
3: big hitters of the philosophy world very big very sluggers. big hitters
2: Yeah, it's slugging it out uh, and there's also a lovely piece by Stig Abel Which we weren't able to talk to him about because he's on holiday, um, about his grandfather and his memories of Dunkirk. Um, So do read that one as well. And if you feel so moved, tweet the podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. And please review us on iTunes, especially if you enjoyed it. Next week is the 70th anniversary of Indian and Pakistani independence and partition. So we'll have a special section on that in the paper with contributions from novelists and historians. We'll also have Elaine Walter on Susan Sontag. So it's goodbye from me.
3: And from me as well.
2: And thank you for listening.
1: Cool fact... A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.